Amen. Thank you, worship team. You can be seated. Before I forget, uh, I wanted to mention uh, that this coming week, uh, Pastor Luke and I will be traveling to Birmingham, Alabama for the general assembly of our denomination uh, that All Souls belongs to, the Presbyterian Church in America. So in a moment, uh, as I prepare to pray for uh, our scripture reading and our sermon, uh, I'm also going to pray for that meeting and ask you to be praying for us as pastors and elders from across the nation gather to fellowship and worship together, but also uh, seek to make decisions led by the Spirit that promote the peace and the purity of our church. Well, we come at long last to our final sermon in this series that I've been preaching periodically here at All Souls on the Ascended Christ. And some of you might hear that and think, finally. Uh, and others might hear it and be a little sad. I feel sad. Um, but it's been a blessing to get to go through this material with you. Uh, it's something that has been incredibly helpful for me, and I hope the same is for you. And one big theme that we've been seeing throughout this series is that our Lord Jesus didn't just act as our prophet and priest and king when he lived on this earth and died in our place, but he continues to act in those very roles even now as he has ascended into heaven. And one of the goals of this series has been, I hope, to prove to all of us that the good news about Jesus' ascension actually makes all the difference in our lives. It offers us strength and comfort as we journey towards heaven, as people that struggle with sin and suffering and the fallen condition of our world. And our text this morning is John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. I'll read it in a moment. I encourage you to have that open, both as I read it at the beginning, but then throughout the sermon. And these words from Jesus come in the context of a bigger chunk of teaching towards the end of his life that scholars commonly call the upper room discourse. Uh, there was a time right before Jesus was going to be arrested and falsely tried and ultimately crucified when he withdrew with just his closest friends, the 12 disciples, to an upper room where they would celebrate the first Lord's Supper together, the Passover meal that Jesus inaugurated in a new way as he was preparing to die and rise and ascend in our place. But he also, in this upper room, taught his friends, his disciples, as he was preparing them for his departure. And one of the things that Jesus wanted his friends to know was that he would continue to act as their prophet even after he ascended into heaven. So let's turn now and read that passage together. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. This is God's word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Would you please pray with me? God, we know that your word is a sharp sword that can pierce our souls. It's a fire and a hammer that can break hard hearts. It's honey to the taste, it's light to our feet. And we desperately need to hear a word from you this morning. Would you speak to us? Would we hear your voice and no other so that we could know you and depend on you and love you and obey you in all things? Pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Every year growing up, on February 8th, my family gathered around our TV, one of the ones with the big backs, you know, not these fancy flat screen TVs that we have nowadays, and we watched a home video together. Now this was before uh, the time when smartphone cameras were proliferate, right? So, if you remember home videos that were made in the 90s or before, uh, let's just say they were not particularly artistic productions. But this home video was special to me and to our family because it captured the moment when I was adopted into my family. Uh, when I was just two days old, fresh out of the hospital, 
I met my parents for the first time. And you can see on this home video that moment when they met me and held me in their arms, when they showed to me the kind of love that God always shows to his people, as we read earlier in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, they didn't love me because I was their flesh and blood. They loved me because they loved me. That's what we read earlier. Why has God set his love on his people? The answer that Deuteronomy 7 gives is because he loves them. So we would gather every February 8th on my adoption day, the anniversary of that moment in our family's life, to remember and to celebrate and to enjoy the communion of our family. And I don't know if you caught it when I read John 14 a few moments ago, but I think this passage contains some of the sweetest words in all of the Bible. Jesus is preparing to leave his friends, to die, yes, but, but even beyond that, to ascend to the Father. But what does he say to them? He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, uh, you too have an adoption story. And just like my family made it a practice growing up to remember and celebrate and delight in that reality, I think one reason God has given us this passage in God's word is to help us to live as God's children day in, day out. And even though it might not be abundantly obvious from the outset, one of the things I think Jesus wants us to see here is that it is because he continues to be our prophet that we can continue to live as God's children. And as we unpack that big idea this morning, I want us to see three things. Uh, first, the prophet's power. Second, the prophet's presence. And third, the prophet's purpose. And I want to give you a warning ahead of time. Uh, Pastor Luke's out of town. Feels like dad's not around and we got to throw a party. So. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm going to actually, I'm going to take a note out of Josue's book from, from last week, and there's going to be a few moments in this sermon when I'm going to ask you to respond, uh, to repeat something that I've said after me. And I just wanted to give you a heads up because I know that that's not our typical MO here. But wh what is the prophet's power? Another way to ask that question is what is a prophet? Uh, what does a prophet do? Uh, what are they for? Well, I think one of the best definitions I've ever heard in response to that question comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible, where it says that a prophet is someone who listens to God and who tells others what God says. So the first thing I want us to repeat together this morning is this beautiful idea that it's very easy to kind of get comfortable with, but should probably shake us up a little bit, and that is that God speaks. God speaks. Say it with me. God speaks. God has sent us a prophet in Jesus who has listened to the Father and who tells us what the Father says. Where do we see that in our passage? I think if we take that definition of what a prophet is and run with it, we actually see that there's abundant evidence in John 14 that that is exactly the terms in which Jesus is casting himself. He's telling his disciples that in an ultimate sense, in a way that actually surpasses all prophets that came before him, he is the one who has access 
to the Father. He is the one who is able to ask the Father for the Spirit. He is the one who is displaying here as he does throughout all of John's gospel, this unique relationship that he has with the Father. Time and again, we see this in verse 20. Jesus says that he is in the Father. In verse 24, he says he speaks the Father's words. In verse 28, he says, the Father is greater than I, not because God the Son is somehow less eternal or less glorious or less beautiful than the Father, but because Jesus in his humanity is acting as the divinely appointed messenger of God, and the one who sends is greater than the one who is being sent. So a prophet is someone who listens to God, but also one who tells others what God says. And according to my count, at least six times in this passage, Jesus emphasizes in some word or another this prophetic teaching that he's giving to his disciples. We see in verses 15 and 21, he talks about his commandments. He refers to his same teaching as his words in verse 24. He talks about this whole upper room discourse, this broader uh, chunk of teaching that he's giving his disciples before he goes to the cross in the words, these things spoken in verse 25. And then finally in verses 28 and 29, respectively, he says, you heard me say, and then, and I told you before. Again and again, Jesus is emphasizing that he as the one with intimate access to the Father is now telling us what the Father says. And I think one of the points that Jesus is making to his disciples who originally heard these words and those of us who identify as disciples of Jesus today is that even after his ascension, he would continue to speak to his people. And for us, where does that happen? Where does that take place? I think many of you would give the right answer. Every time we open up God's word, Jesus is speaking to us. If that's true, and it is, what should our posture be when we come to God's word, whether that's reading it on our own devotionally or discussing it in a small group or hearing it read and taught in a worship service? You know, God's word is described in a lot of different ways in the Bible. It's called a sharp sword. It's called light to our feet, a lamp to our path in Psalm 119. In Psalm 19, it's described as being sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It's described as being more valuable than much fine gold. We could go on and on. Well, I I wanna draw your attention to just one verse that gives us a picture of something Not the only thing, but something that should happen to us when we come to Jesus' voice in the Bible. And that's Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. This is what it says. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? There's a moment in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Susan 
is hearing more about this Aslan character from Mr. Beaver, this promised savior of the land of Narnia. And she finds out from Mr. Beaver that Aslan, uh, to her surprise, is not a man, but a lion. And she asks this question. She says first, oh, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver responds uh, in a way that maybe some of you remember. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think it's possible for those of us that have been around God's word for a long time, maybe even most of our lives, to get comfortable with Jesus's voice in the scriptures. Maybe even to experience it as sweeter than honey and as light to our path, but to forget that it's also intended for us, for our good, to be a fire and a hammer. When was the last time you felt painfully confronted by God's word? If it's difficult for you to answer that question, and if I'm being honest, as I was preparing for this, I think I would say it's sometimes difficult for me to answer that question. I want to propose to you that it could be that you're not reading honestly. It could be that you're not reading the Bible honestly. Uh, You're maybe focusing on the sections that are familiar and comfortable and the ones that kind of freak you out or Uh, challenge you in some way, it's easy to ignore those, isn't it? But we can also be reading dishonestly by reading ourselves dishonestly, by not actually being honest before God about our deepest, most shameful secrets, Uh, the things from our past that haunt us, the things in our present that seem overwhelming. Now, I hope and pray that week in, week out, as you come here to worship with God's people, that you do taste and see that the Lord is good, uh, that God's word is like honey to you. It's like light to your feet. But I wonder what would it look like if we came to the voice of Jesus in the Bible, came to the voice of Christ, our prophet, with the expectation that we would be confronted, that we would be broken down so that he could build us up again into a glorious habitation for himself. Christ is our prophet, and his word is a hammer. He confronts us and calls us to submit all of our lives to him. Uh, To paraphrase a famous quote from Abraham Kuyper, there's not one square inch over your life over which Christ, the Lord of all, does not cry, mine. And this is good news, as uncomfortable as it can be, because Christ has said to us, I will not leave you as orphans. Think about it. What is an orphan, legally or or perhaps functionally? It's someone who doesn't have a loved one, a parent, a guardian to instruct them, to lovingly discipline them, to guide them and protect them. 
So Jesus' ongoing speaking to us, even now from heaven through his Holy Spirit, even when it's most uncomfortable in our lives, it's a sign that you're a child of God. Just as it says in Hebrews 12, verse 3, God the Father disciplines those that he loves. But Jesus isn't just one who exercises this prophetic power for our good. He is also with us. And here we come to uh, the second opportunity for you to respond uh, to me as we listen to God's word together. God speaks to us in Jesus, but we also see here the prophet's presence. So I want you to know that God is here. Even now, God is here. Say that with me. God is here. He is here with us through his Holy Spirit. And I think this is one of the most glorious benefits of Jesus's ascension. That amazingly, shockingly, uh, in a way that's pretty counterintuitive to the way that we think, Jesus is actually more present with his people today than he was when he walked on the earth. That doesn't mean we're not longing to be with him and see him face to face, but he's no longer limited to the physical confines of his body because he is present with all of his people through the Holy Spirit. That's what he's getting at in Matthew chapter 28 when he says right before he ascends into heaven, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the presence of the prophet through his spirit comes with all sorts of benefits to us. For these earliest disciples, the apostles, it enabled them, what does our passage say, to remember the things that Jesus had taught them, to even carry forward that revelation in in a fuller way in the name of Jesus. We have John's gospel because the spirit was with the apostles in a special way, but he's also with us enabling us today to read and hear God's word and to not just be informed, but transformed by the renewal of our minds. But I want to focus for a moment on another aspect of the Spirit's presence that Jesus draws our eyes to in John 14. And that is something that scholars have sometimes described as the legacy of Christ. Uh, When a significant leader is preparing to leave a role he's been serving in for a time, or a particular leader is preparing to die, she might uh, start thinking about legacy. And well, what is Jesus's legacy for his people? Look at what it says in verse 27. Peace I give to you. And this peace, of course, comes through the Holy Spirit. What does it say in Galatians chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now, it's possible when I say that for some of us in the room uh, to roll our eyes a little bit, uh, even if you believe that it's true. Because if we took a careful look at our lives, does it often look like our circumstances are marked by peace? Perhaps you work in a job that is demanding, and it seems like the to-do list is ever-growing, and you don't feel peace. Perhaps you are in a season of your life where 
A typical day for you is a day marked by boredom, by the mundane, by monotony. You don't feel a sense of direction or purpose. You don't feel peace. For some of us, our homes are loud and messy and chaotic, and children are hanging from the ceiling fans. And for others of us, we come home at the end of a long day to an empty home, longing for community, for intimacy that we're not currently experiencing. And worst of all, there's our sin, our past sin, whatever that sin is for you that haunts you, a present struggle that feels insurmountable, uh, the sin that someone else committed against you that has harmed your soul in some way. We look at our lives and we don't see peace. But you're in good company. Think about it. Who did Jesus first speak these words to? It was to the 12 disciples. What would their lives be like after he ascended into heaven? They would be hunted, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, crucified. Their lives were not marked by peace. So what is Jesus saying here? Peace I give to you. He knew what would happen. He says as much at the end of John's gospel to the apostle Peter, indicating the manner in which he would die. Well, I think we get some clarity from the next words that Jesus says. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace that Jesus gives us is not the peace that the world offers. It's not good vibes all the time. It's not the American dream. It's not your best life now. The peace Jesus offers is something better. It's peace with God, the one with whom you are naturally at war because of your sin. Peace with the lover of your soul. And an experience of that peace through the presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who at the dawn of creation hovered over the face of the waters, we're told that he now hovers over our souls to give us quietness and peace that isn't always manifested in our circumstances, but can and should transcend those circumstances. When the apostle Peter walked on water with Jesus, when did he begin to sink? It was when he took his eyes off of Jesus. I want to propose to you today, not that you should close your ears and cover your eyes and just pretend like everything is happy-go-lucky, but that you really can know peace in your soul if you look not first to the crazy, hard circumstances that you might be in this morning, but you look to Jesus, who at the end of this passage said, rise, let us go from here, who would go from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested and beaten and tried and killed so that we could know peace 
to be separated from the Father so that God, as he says in John 14, would come and make his home with us. You can know this peace because Jesus, through his spirit, is with you in every circumstance, even the valley of the shadow of death. Last of all, what is the prophet's purpose? Well, I want to put before you this morning that God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for you. Say that with me. God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose in your life, and he shows us what that purpose is through Jesus, our great prophet. Look at what it says at the beginning and the end of the passage that we read. In verse 15, it's our obedience to Christ's commands that is in view. And then in verse 31, it's Christ's obedience to the Father that is in view. But our whole passage is kind of bracketed by the word commandments, by the idea of obedience. And this was actually a literary device in the ancient world called an an inclusio that functioned like bookends to show, hey, this is kind of a discrete unit that we can study and understand. It has a a unity. There's a a message that ties it together. And what is that message? It's that Jesus' purpose for you is obedience. And we don't like obedience. My daughter, Ellis, uh, this past week, I've decided, by the way, that I'm going to set a quota for myself. I can only use Ellis once per sermon um, as an illustration. But earlier this week, she uh, started climbing up on a chair in our kitchen, which was kind of fun. I mean, she's in this stage where she's getting more and more mobile, right? She's one year old. But then she began to climb up onto the table, right? And that's where Amanda, my wife, and I kind of drew the line. And we said to her, no, Ellis. And she turns and looks at us. And then she looks back at the table. She shakes her head no. And then she keeps climbing. (laughs) She showed by shaking her head that she understood what we were asking of her. uh, But she wanted to climb the table more. We are all like Ellis, uh, except it's not always that cute. Sometimes it can be pretty nasty. Our hearts are inclined towards disobedience. And even as Christians, when we are enabled to obey through the work of the Spirit, sometimes the obedience that we offer to God is begrudging. It's a matter merely of duty and not of delight. And I think one reason for that is that we have missed what Jesus is saying to us in John 14. How do we do that? We divorce law and love. We divorce communion with God from the commandments of God. We separate relationship and religion or rules. Now, there, there might be a kernel of truth in some of those attitudes. Uh, you read the way that the Apostle Paul describes the law sometimes, and you're like, okay. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't divorce these things. He doesn't separate law and love. He doesn't separate communion with God from the commandments of God. 
But it's so easy for us to do that, whether in our minds consciously, we could even say some of those things I just said. Give me love, but not the law. Love is liberating, law is constricting. But we can also do this in practice, even if we wouldn't say that we sign our names after any of those statements. Look at what Jesus says in verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my words. Now, there's a danger here. Some of us know, rightly, because the Bible teaches clearly, that our only hope for standing before God at the last day and receiving the verdict not only not guilty but righteous, beloved, chosen, that that the only way we can have that verdict at the last day is because of our faith in Jesus, which connects us to him. Our obedience doesn't weigh into the equation at all. And we actually get a a helpful description of that reality in verse 20. Jesus says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's actually a beautiful definition of what theologians often call union with Christ, which means once you put your trust in Jesus, you're connected to him, and you get the things he gets. He died and rose and ascended, and you were with him. And that means one day after you die, you will rise, and you will be exalted to a position of honor and glory with Jesus because you're united to him, and your works, your obedience, doesn't contribute towards that one bit. But Christ as our prophet isn't just after our union with him, as important as that is. He's also after our communion with him, our experience of that union. You might show up here this morning feeling like the crummiest Christian who's ever walked the face of the earth. But if your trust is in Jesus, you are just as united to him today as on the day when you feel like everything is going as well as it possibly could. But our obedience to God is a big factor in our experience of that union, in our enjoyment of communion with the God who loves us. Jesus is tying together our growth in obedience with our growth in knowing God and loving God. So do you want to know and love God more? Jesus has provided a pathway for that, and it's called obedience. And in the upper room discourse, this obedience takes a particular shape. Uh, Hypothetically, you could take any of the Ten Commandments, maybe, and think about them. You know, what is some way that God is calling me in dependence on the Spirit to live my life more in line with this truth, and how might he use that long-term to help me to know him more and love him more and enjoy him more? That would be a good thing. But in John 14, the, the broader context shows us that there's a particular commandment in view. And we know this if we go back and read John 13, verses 34 through 35, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love 
one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In other words, as Jesus would go on to demonstrate not long after he spoke these words to his disciples, if you want to grow in love and knowledge of God, you need to love one another to death. In verse 31, how does Jesus prove that he loves the Father? He obeys him. He dies. How do we know whether we really love Jesus? We obey him. We die in service to one another. I wonder, sarcastically, if any of you in this room are looking for a surefire strategy for not growing in the Christian life. If you're looking for a strategy like that, I have one for you. Withdraw from Christian community. Jesus is telling us here that wrapped together with growing in love and knowledge of God is actively loving and serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. So what could that look like for you this week, even after the service? Uh, moving towards someone new, inviting someone into your home. Maybe in the fall, if you're not a part of a small group, you might consider joining one and finding new ways to push a little deeper into the community of God's people, not just so that you can benefit in a consumeristic way, but so that you can serve. You can use the gifts that God has given you, even when it's expensive and challenging and messy. And this isn't a formula. It's not a quid pro quo. It's a relationship. But like any relationship, there are patterns. And I, I want to say to you with the authority of God's word that if you pursue these things, the spirit, I believe, will use that to help you to grow in love and knowledge of God. When our family watched my adoption video on February 8th every year growing up, we were partaking together in a liturgy. Often that word is confined to uh, explicit religious contexts, but a liturgy is a practice. It's something that's done in community often that, that is forming us in some way. And we were watching this video together every year in a way that helped us to remember and to celebrate and to enjoy the fact that I'd been included in my family. I think one of the best liturgies we can take on to remember that you are God's child, that he delights in you, that he speaks to you through Jesus, his son, that he is present with you through the Holy Spirit. One of the best things you can do is find some way to serve your brothers and sisters. Now, we are going to fail at this inevitably. Jesus is earliest disciples failed to. Not long after he spoke these words, when he was arrested, they would scatter. Peter would deny him. Only John would be there at the scene of the crucifixion. And yet Jesus came to them anyway. He sent them the Spirit anyway. The grace of God is shocking. It always comes before our obedience. And that same grace is offered to you today. Jesus will never fail you because he continues to speak to you even in this moment 
through his word. You can hear his voice. He is with you in every circumstance if you trust in him through his spirit. And he's inviting you further up and further in into a relationship with God, one that you can pursue through sacrificially loving and serving others just as he has done for us. Would you please pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that the victory is yours. You have ascended on high. You are seated at the Father's right hand. You have promised to come again one day. And until that final and ultimate coming, you come to us even now through your spirit. Please help us to know your presence with us, to delight in the reality that you have not left us as orphans. We have such a beautiful adoption story to remember and celebrate and live out together. Help us to do that through your Holy Spirit. Even now as we continue to worship and as we go from here and seek to offer you a daily worship in every facet of our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.